Yeah, so the principles and practices for prophecy, tongues, and women speaking in church. The first one is love and order. We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about prophecy and tongues specifically, and then we're going to talk about these two verses about women being silent in church. And so that's where we're going this morning. This first point, love and order, the, the principle of this passage, really of, of chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, is that the church gathering, now in their, in their culture, in their context, they were smaller gatherings, mostly in homes. It was like a community group, really. It was more like what you do when you scatter into your community group and you open up the Bible and you talk about it and everyone has a different take, everyone has a different rabbit trail. It was kind of like that. That's their context for church practice here. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is addressing these house churches and helping them to understand spiritual gifts, helping them to understand love and helping them to understand how to function in, a, in, in love and it takes order. His primary concern in this entire section is that the church community is built up in love, particularly when it gathers for corporate worship. And again, their corporate gathering was not quite like ours. In homes, sometimes on Sunday morning, sometimes some of the cities they would go to synagogues and have something a little more similar to our gathering, but oftentimes it was very informal in homes growing together. And his primary concern is that they build one another up in love when they do that. And in order for this to happen, there has to be a certain level of organization or order, right? Even when you go over to somebody's house with a group of people, whether you're going to study the Bible or whether you're just going to have dinner, there has to be some sort of order, right? The food comes, the drinks come. One person talks at a time, unless you're part of my family, then everybody talks at the same time and no one knows anything. And that's kind of Paul's point. <laughs> love and order. He wants the church gathering to have this. In, in chapter 8, we're going to do a little bit of looking around, so I hope you have a Bible. Flip to chapter 8 with me. A little more context for chapter 14. As he's talking about food law in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we preached about that months ago. I'm not going to redo that, but listen to the second part of this verse. He says, We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's talking about a certain type of spiritual knowledge that tends to puff people up and they tend to look down on other people who don't have that spiritual knowledge. And he's saying be careful with that kind of knowledge because the point of a church gathering, the point of a church family, whether it's on a Sunday morning or in a home, is that when we come together, we would be built up in love. Knowledge tends to puff our head up, but love tends to build the body, the family up. Chapter 11, which we covered a few weeks ago, he talks about head coverings. So just flip there, look at the, the, the headings with me. He talks about head coverings, and that talks about the order and the difference of men and women. God's creative good order for creating men and women differently, for giving us distinct and complementary different genders and roles associated with that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon if um, that those two verses about women speaking in church. Uh, we're going to get there, but we covered that some a few weeks ago as well. And what he's doing in chapter 11 is talking about order in the church, love and order in the church, that when people speak and prophesy, and you'll notice, look at verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 5. He says, Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. 
And, and we talked about that again a couple weeks ago, but I need you to know up front here that Paul is not perpetually saying that all women need to be silent all the time when the church comes together. In fact, he's encouraging praying and prophesying of women in the church in 1 Corinthians 11, but there's a certain way to do it. There's a certain order that builds the church up in love. That's his point. And then the second half of chapter 11, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, communion, and it's not what we're familiar with, like the little packets in the pew in front of you, right? Where when, you know, the holy rip, the holy wrinkle, you're all familiar with it if you've been here for a while. He's not talking about that. This is a love feast. This is like the picnic at the park, right? What we're going to afterward, where the church would come together and they would eat, they would feast, and, and, and there was injustice happening in that. The people with money were taking the most food and the best food, and they, in fact, they were getting drunk at the, at the church celebration, as far as I know, we don't have anything for you to get drunk on at the church celebration today. So if anyone's drunk, that's on them, not on us. But they were actually drinking so much wine at the communion that they were getting drunk and they were neglecting the, the, the people on a lower income level, the people who were struggling to, to get enough food to nourish their souls. And so Paul says that's not loving. The, the purpose of the church gathering and the, the love feast, having meals together, is to build the church up in love. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about gifts and how all these different gifts work together the same way that the body works together, the same way that my joints move my arms and my brain causes my fingers to function and, and the foot helps me to walk and the hand helps me to write and all of it works together. That's the church, the body of Christ. All parts are needed. All parts are necessary. All parts are working together. And then chapter 13, it's all about love, right? We looked at that last week. And then he moves into chapter 14, which is about primarily prophecy and tongues. It's not primarily about whether women can or can't speak in church. We're going to deal with it. We'll address it. But it's not primarily about that. It's primarily about how tongues and prophecy are practiced in the church and how love and order are necessary for there to be proper functioning. Look at verse 1. He says, pursue love of chapter 14, right? Coming out of the love chapter, chapter 13, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love. This is our chief call as people of Jesus, committed to a church, is to pursue love together. Then he says, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts listed in chapter 12, and he says a variety of gifts. We don't even know what all the gifts are, how many they are, but desire them especially that you may prophesy. And in this church, they needed prophecy because they were valuing other spiritual gifts. There was a level of disorder coming to the church, and there was a level of comparing and fighting, and as I've mentioned before, gift projection, where everyone wanted the same gifts because it got them in seats of power and prestige and position. And he's saying, especially that you may prophesy because this church desperately needed to hear prophecy. And we're going to talk about what that is in just a minute. And so that's, that's the context. Look at verse 12 of chapter 14. He says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The main principle to take away from Paul's words here, and the main practice for us to take away, is that Paul cares about the church being built up in love. That's a principle of what he's writing about. And that's also, he's saying, every order that I'm giving you, everything that I'm giving you about how to practice these gifts is so that the church may be built up in love. Look at verse 33. He says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
That's why there's a certain way. That's why there's a certain order given to how the church uses gifts. Because God is not a God of confusion. Right? When, when they even had you talk with one another, it was loud and chaotic. I picked up none of that. I heard a ton of mumbling. Hopefully you understood, you know, the name of the person sitting next to you. But imagine if church, your church experience was that. Okay, everyone, just talk to each other for a while about your faith. Read a verse and then tell everyone what you think it is all at the same time. Nothing would come of that, right? The church would not be built up in love. We would be confused. And Paul here is saying that God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. He wants to bring wholeness and restoration. So there's a certain way that the church practices its, its spiritual gifts. And then verse 40, as he closes out the chapter, he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, one point on this before we move into tongues and prophecy. We all have a different threshold for what's decently and orderly, right? And so what seems decently and orderly to you may be different for somebody else. In fact, a lot of global churches, they come into our like pretty Scandinavian Minnesota worship style, and they're like, that is so decent and orderly, it drives me nuts. Like, how is that even reverent? How is that even worshipful? I've actually, had, I've actually had people from different countries tell me that it seems disrespectful how stoic you guys are when you worship God. Like, aren't you even excited? We have an African church that meets here in the afternoon. They are so loud, so exuberant. You may walk into their service and think that they're undecent and disorderly because it's a different cultural practice. But for them, that's decent and it's ordered. And so just keep that in mind. We can't judge one another based off of what is decently and orderly to us. But God, through the servant Paul, is giving us some standards for the church gathering. That there is a certain threshold of, of decency and order. And related to this point about love and order too, we need to keep in mind that, that thinking and feeling, oftentimes churches split over, like you have the intellectual churches that love to think and study and talk and go deep. Then you have the emotional churches that love to sing and sway and experience and feel. They're both needed. We need to put them together. Look at verse 20. Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So he's actually appealing to this church in this context for them to grow up in their thinking. There's some sort of nonsensical emotional worship or valuing of a spiritual gift that's taking them away from rational thinking. But we need thinking and feeling together in our church gatherings, whether it's in a small group in a home or on a Sunday morning gathering. We need the rational and the emotional to come together. And there's a certain way that we do that where the rational doesn't take over and, and squelches the spiritual and the emotional. Or there's a certain way, there's a certain order in love where the, the, the emotional doesn't take over and it squelches all thinking. And that's part of what Paul's getting at here. I want you to be reasonable people who think and who grow in maturity in the way that you think, but I also want you to love one another. I want you to feel love for one another and for God, and I also want you to practice love for God and one another in what you do and what you say and how you act. And so that's the first principle and practice to keep in mind, that Paul's primary concern is that there would be love and order in the church. And then let's move into prophecy and tongues. We're going to talk first about prophecy. Paul's primary concern is that prophecy and tongues are used in love and to build others up. Right? That, coming from that first principle, love and order, Paul's 
whole concern for this church is that prophecy and tongues are used in an orderly way where it builds the church up rather than just individual spirituality, right? You don't come to church on a Sunday morning so that you would grow. That's a piece of it. You don't come to church on a Sunday morning hoping for your worship style, hoping for a sermon that will speak directly to you, hoping that me in my little world, I will get what I need. No, I come to church because it's a collective community. It's a family of people who all need to hear a word from God, who all need to engage God in the worship, who all need one another. They need little chit-chats in the hallway. They need to see other parents getting frustrated with their kids. They need to see other singles who are frustrated with their singleness. They need that. And so we come together and there's some kind of order when we come together that builds us up. It's not just for our own spirituality, but for this collective growth in Jesus. And his primary concern is that when we gather, again, whatever form you want, it's that we are building one another up in love, that we're exercising our gifts in such a way where we're other focused, others focused with our gifts. And this requires a certain level of order, whether it's a ho- in a home or a church building. In the context here, he's primarily talking about how they use verbal gifts, speaking, prophecy, teaching. He encourages both gifts, prophecy and tongues. Some of you need to know that. Some of you come from a background where you were encouraged not to pursue these gifts. And Paul here is pers- he's encouraging the church to pursue, to desire prophecy and tongues. But he wants them to be used lovingly and orderly. So prophecy. What is prophecy? In the Old Testament, prophecy was often foretelling the future. In the New Testament, it's not foretelling the future. It's uncovering the truth. It's speaking God's truth in a way that encourages and convicts. That brings confidence in who God is and holiness in living. Now, there may be some foretelling of the future, some prophecy in that way, um, alive and well today in the church, but it's, it's rare. It's, it's an anomaly. The, the most common mode of prophecy in the New Testament in the first century, and I think today, is when somebody shares a word from God that, look at verse 3. It says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. It's a word that encourages people. It, it, it helps Christians to, to persevere, to strive on, to keep going. It reminds you of the gospel, that you're not saved by your works. You're saved by Jesus' work. It encourages, it encourages you to keep running after Jesus and to stay committed to his people. Also, look at verse 24 and 25. Prophecy also has, has something for the believer and for the non-believer. Verse 24, he says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, comes into our church gathering, and we may have some of you here this morning, we're so glad if you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is your Savior, if you've never given your life to him, we're so glad that you're here, so glad that you're asking questions, welcome. And if you're here, and if any outsider or unbeliever enters, it says that if there's prophetic words happening, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is why so many testimonies that I hear, people became Christians while listening to a sermon. 
Now, certainly, there's, there's communities, there's discipleship that has to happen. The sermon is such a small part of what the church does. The proclamation of the word is a small slice of our activity, but it's an incredibly important slice of our activity. And you'll hear as you talk to people and get to know people, a lot of people will tell you that they came to faith or that their faith was really solidified when they heard a, a proclaimed word. And part of this is because of the prophetic word of God comes out and the secrets of our heart are revealed. Sounds threatening, right? We like to keep those hidden. We like to keep those covered. But God doesn't want secrets for his family. There is no shame. There is no embarrassment. Your secrets, your dark needs to be exposed. The light of God's love needs to shine into your dark places. And that's why the church exists. And when a prophetic word is given, people are often cut to the heart. Their secrets are disclosed. And they say, I'm a sinner. He's a great savior. I need him. That's what happens. That's the the point of prophecy. Now, a lot of you have been hurt by bad prophecy. I have my own examples. Um, I have a couple listed here. I'm not going to share them now because we don't have time. Uh, There is bad prophecy which hurts people. Keep in mind what prophecy is. Verse 3 and 24 and 25 tell us a very clear way. It's something that encourages and convicts. And if it convicts you, it convicts you in an encouraging, loving way where it draws you to Jesus. Not where it shames you, puts you down, it exposes you, but not in a way where it brings shame. It brings healing. That's biblical prophecy. I've had some prophecy spoken over me that was hurtful and harmful, and I've had some prophecy spoken over me that was really helpful and healing. In fact, a little over a year ago, a female in our church had a quick little prophetic word over me, like a two-minute conversation in a pew after a service, and and it helped to, like, helped to bring a lot of healing and restoration and, and, and endurance to my soul and to my ministry here. And, and so that's what prophecy is. Now tongues. Paul also talks about tongues. And so what he's saying about prophecy is that there needs to be love and order when it's used in the church gathering. We know what it is. We saw what it is. We know how he wants us to use it. Tongues. Tongues, the Greek word is glossed. It means language. So there's debate about tongues. There's different church movements who think different things about tongues. There's two primary things for tongues. One is that it's other known languages. So there's thousands of languages spoken, right, on our earth, and there's hundreds of languages spoken even in our own communities. And so tongues, it it can be an other known language. Simply stated, look look at verse 10. Uh, Paul says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Amazing. There's not a superior language or culture, by the way. Just keep that in mind, because sometimes different cultures, different languages, different ways of doing... I think most cultures actually tend to think that their way of doing life is superior to other people, or very inferior there's value in all cultures, in all languages, in all people groups, in all, in all tribes, in all languages. And you and I will be in heaven for eternity, worshiping with all tribes, tongues, cultures, nations, languages to the glory of God. Amen? It's going to be a beautiful picture. And so Paul is saying, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Those of you who English is not your first language and you keep coming to park, thank you for doing that. You, you have to work harder than the rest of us to understand some of the cultural nuances, to understand some of my, my illustrations. 
thank you for putting in the work. The majority of, majority of us, English is our first language, and so that's why I speak in English. It also happens to be the only language I know. <laughs> but if, if I was in Mexico preaching, I should learn Spanish, right? If I was in, in China preaching, I should probably learn Mandarin. And whatever the primary language is of that gathering, that's the language that should be used. And it's not to say that we, that we can't have different languages expressed here in our worship gathering, but because the majority of us primarily speak English, that's the language that we use because that makes sense, right? That's what Paul is saying here. And so in Corinth, they spoke a language, Greek or Aramaic, and, and that should be the primary language spoken in their gatherings so that people would know. Now, so that's one interpretation of tongues, it's just other known languages. The other one is that there's a heavenly prayer language. That's how tongues is often used. And, and Paul is addressing that in this text as well, I think. Look at verse 2. He says, For one who speaks in a tongue, a language, speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirits. Remember in verse 10, he said that there's these other languages that aren't without meaning. Somebody understands that language somewhere, but also there's this, this prayer language that nobody understands, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Some of you have that gift. Some of you have had that experience of a, of a prayer language, a tongue that, that just unites your soul in depth to God, and what a gift it is. But Paul is saying we need to be careful with that prayer language in the church gathering because it's for individual spirituality, not for communal spirituality. And when the church gathers, it's for the community, it's for the families, not for the individual. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who speaks prophecy builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Those of you who are like, do away with those weird gifts because they're uncontrollable? Well, I don't know. Paul wants you to all speak in them. At least he wanted the Corinthians to all speak in tongues and prophesy. He says, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And, and he's not saying the person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues. He's saying that this gift in the church gathering is greater because it's actually building up the church. Remember, that's the principle and the practice. Everything that we do should build the church up collectively. It's not for individual spirituality, and it's not for destroying the community. It's for building up the community. Uh, one point that I want to make for you as well. Um, let's, a little bit more about the private prayer languages, verse 16 and se verses 16 and 17. He says, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? He's talking about private prayer language of tongues here. So if you're engaging the Holy Spirit in your own spirit, giving thanks in a tongue, how can anyone else give an amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Paul, in the first century, in Corinth, is, is saying you should say amen every now and then in the public gathering. Right? Amen! When we're singing worship and a line hits you, don't be afraid to say Amen! When we finish a song and your soul has been stirred with affection for Jesus, don't be afraid to say amen and give a clap. Don't try to clap with a song because you're all offbeat and it won't work, but just amen. When, when the preacher says something that stirs your affection for Jesus, don't be afraid to say amen and let people know that, that meant something to me. 
I've been in some more diverse worship settings than this one, and it's so amazing. It's so life-giving to me when people are yelling amen, and in certain contexts and cultures, like the people in the front pews, they stand up and start walking at the preacher. First time I was in that setting, I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) And and it's like, for them, it's a sign of respect and order. They say, preach! Come on, brother! And I'm like, yes! That's awesome! And Paul here is saying that when we gather, there should be order, there should be intelligible words that stir our hearts with greater affection for Jesus, and it should elicit some response. Amen. And look at verse 17, he says, for you may be giving thanks well enough, you and your private individual spirituality and your tongue, your prayer language, but the other person is not being built up. Again, the principle, the practice is to build up the church in love for the glory of God, the good of the church and the advancement of the gospel. Now, if you want to see these, lang- the, these gifts played out, I encourage you to go and read Acts chapter 2 later on. I was going to have us look at it today, but we don't have time. Um, Acts chapter 2, jot that down. The first 15 verses show about tongues as in another language being spoken at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and empowered the church. It's a beautiful picture of that gift of tongues other languages being spoken and interpreted to their native hearers and speakers. There's, and then it moves into the gift of prophecy in verses 16 through 41, where Peter, one of the apostles, stands up and he gives this prophetic declaration about who Jesus is and why he deserves our worship and why he calls us to repentance. And then thousands of people become Christians, followers of Jesus, the way that day. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, the end of the chapter, you see the body being built up in love. Acts chapter 2 is a beautiful picture of the gift of tongues and prophecy working in a godly biblical way where the church is being built up in love as one. And he closes out, really, this chapter with this reminder about order, right? Paul wants to see the verbal gifts. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn. Thank you, worship team, for bringing us a few hymns. A lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And he's speaking specifically here of the verbal gifts, right? Because some of the gifts are pretty silent on a Sunday morning, and some of you want it that way. Some of you have silent gifts that are behind the scenes, Some have verbal gifts, and and, and whether it's in a community group or a church gathering, we we need to figure out how how do we encourage and build up the body with these verbal gifts, but it has to be done in love and order. That's Paul's whole whole point. Remember verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. And so when we come together, there's there's various gifts, there's multiple verbal gifts, and we need to figure out how do we utilize those multiple verbal gifts so that people could be built up. One of the reasons why we do Bible studies in small groups is so that so other people with the gift of teaching and speaking and tongues and prophecy can do that. One of the reasons why you need to embody yourself in a community and get to know people is so that people with the gift of prophecy who aren't preaching regularly on a Sunday can speak words of prophecy over you and encourage you with their prophetic gift. All right. That moves us to point number three. That's an overview right? Love and order, prophecy tongues. And, and as we move to point number three, and we've got a little bit of time here, I'm going to go quick. If you would like to have more conversations about this, I would love to do that with you. 
Our church is consistently thinking these things through and wrestling these things through. And, and a reason why I'm doing this whole chapter together today is because beginning in August, we're going to have different global partners sharing every week. And that's our focus for the month of August. And I really felt called like we just need to get through this book. And also, this is a letter that the church read in one sitting. So some of you this morning, where you were like 40 verses, that's a lot. Get me out of here. Well, when the church in the first century would gather, they would go through this whole letter together. And so I don't want to separate this conversation about women speaking in the church from love and prophecy because it's together for a reason. Remember, the whole principle and the practice here is that the church would do things in a loving and orderly way so that the church may be built up. This relates to prophecy and tongues. And I think there's a cultural nuance here to how women were engaging with prophecy and tongues in the church in Corinth. That's why Paul has it here. As we move to this point, I want you to know Paul's primary concern is that the church upholds, God, upholds God's creation order between male and female. Again, I spoke more about this in chapter 11. God created us different. Have you noticed? Like, biologically, we're different. We have different body parts. But also, some of the things that we say, think, and do, there's some generalizations which sometimes are really helpful and sometimes very unhelpful. Keep that in mind. But God did create us different, and it's beautiful, and we need each other. And so Paul's concern here is to uphold that difference, that distinction between male and female. And his concern is that the church practices its spiritual gifts with a certain order that, that leads to comprehension about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. He's not silencing women or squelching their spiritual gifts. I know it reads that way. It really does. This is a hard passage. There's many different interpretations. And I'll, 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 I just want to remind you that all the different interpretations, they're guesses. There is no expert on first century culture in Corinth from 2,000 years ago. There's people who have done a lot of work to, to try and get close but we're still very far removed. And so, again, we come to this with humility. I do not believe Paul is silencing women perpetually or trying to squelch their spiritual gifts. This has often been how this passage has been interpreted. Some movements, some churches have interpreted this passage without considering the context and the culture and the application, and it's deeply hurt women and the body of Christ as a result. And if you've been in a church environment where you've been hurt or abused by male leadership in a church, I'm really sorry for that. We at Park were trying to grow into this area and figure out what does it mean for us to elevate and express all of the spiritual gifts God gives to men and women and in an order that God wants for his church. That's tricky. That's what we're trying to do. This is an area of growth for us continually, and, and, and we are listening, we're learning, we're growing in our understanding of how to empower women, how to hear their voices, how to unleash their spiritual gifts, and God honoring in biblically faithful ways. And so now, what does Paul mean by silence? If Paul doesn't, he says silence, what does he mean? Who knows? Seriously, I mean that, who knows? All of the experts disagree. They all take an educated guess. Some of them have more reasonable educated guesses than others. But it's hard to know exactly what he means. Here's what we do know, Paul. Here's my best educated guess. Let me give it to you that way. 
I don't think Paul means total silence for women in the churches, whether it's in a house church or in a more corporate gathering like this, based on other places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11.5, he talks about women praying and prophesying in the church, and he doesn't tell them to stop. He tells them to do it in a certain order, a certain way. There's a certain way that, it's, that it ought to be done. 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the gifts of the body, and, and they're not gendered gifts. They're the gifts of the body. There's a prophecy from Joel, which, is in quote, which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, which we didn't look at this morning, but I, again, I encourage you, write down Acts chapter 2, go read that. In this prophecy in the Old Testament, which Peter quotes in the New Testament, it says that your young men and your women will dream dreams and have visions and give prophecies when Jesus the Messiah comes and the Holy Spirit descends on his people. It speaks specifically about women being empowered to prophesy and to speak. The Old Testament has, has women prophets, prophetesses, and, and one judge that we know about. It didn't have priests or kings. So that's something to keep in mind. There are roles, authoritative leadership, responsibility-bearing roles in Scripture that men hold which women don't hold. And so that's a time and a place for another conversation, but keep in mind that there are women who prophesy in the Old Testament. Deborah serves as a judge. In the Gospels, there's a lot of women who follow Jesus. They're considered disciples. We talk a lot about the 12 disciples, all male. Well, there were a lot of other disciples, many of them female. The, the women are the ones who saw the empty tomb and the angel told them to go and proclaim the good news to the, to the disciples. They brought that news back and they had to speak, right? They didn't like play charades to act out the empty tomb, right? They ran back to Peter and said, Peter, guess what we saw? They had to open up their mouth and speak. So Paul isn't saying, saying women have to be silent on spiritual matters or among the church community. Paul's ministry included a lot of women who, who share and talk and pray and prophesy and open up their homes. So I don't believe Paul means total silence. I, believe that, I don't believe that Paul means total silence because of Scripture, also because of our own experiences, right? I think every one of us, hopefully if you've been around the church for any length of time, there's been a woman who has spoken into your life and it's been meaningful and necessary and God-honoring and personally edifying whether it's in a Sunday gathering or a community group or, or whether it's when Linda gets up to give announcements and she like tears up because of the worship and it causes you to feel emotion for God, right? Thank you, Linda. And all of the other women who are doing incredible things in our church family. So our own experiences, I think, help us to understand that Paul doesn't mean women be silent all the time, perpetually never open your mouth in any type of church function. In the, so what does he mean? It's tough. In context of 1 Corinthians 14, the word silent is used for more than just women. Look at verse 28. He says, But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. Man or woman. There's a certain order to prophecy. There's a certain order to tongues that if it's not done orderly and to build up the church, there ought to be silence. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And I actually don't understand this verse. I think it means that if while I'm speaking, one of you has a revelation, I'm supposed to go sit down and you're supposed to stand up and speak. That's how this reads and I think that's how this works in the 
community group setting. That as somebody's sharing, somebody's inspired, there's this give and take. Now, it's a little bit differently in our format. Um, I don't know. Maybe at some point we'll get to the point where you're like, hey, God just triggered me to say something, and I'll go sit down and you'll share. I don't know. All of you who, that's like, no way, that's so disorderly. I'm not ready to go there yet. But, but this, right, keep in mind, Paul here is saying there's certain things where people ought to be silent. It's not just about women. It has to do with specific issues of prophecy and tongues being mishandled in the public gathering, which might be related to this church. And now he does say all the churches everywhere. So there's some type of universal truth that love and order, that orderly gatherings need to be maintained for the edification of the body and for the evangelism of the non-believer. I think in this setting, it's, it's possible that women were speaking out of turn, interpreting or undercutting or disrespecting the, the leaders in the church. Maybe they were asking their husbands about certain questions, and, and that's what it says here, right? It's like that they should go home and ask their husbands at home for it's shameful. There was some kind of shame being brought to the church by the way that women were questioning or undercutting or sharing in this context, in this moment, and in the New Testament first century church. And if you go back and listen to the sermon on 1 Corinthians 11, it talked about order and how actually our order and the difference between men and women gives, gives glory to God and it, and it gives value to his creative difference and distinction. And if we're not careful, if we, if, if we don't protect that God actually created men and women differently as a good and glorious thing, it actually brings a, a, a type of cultural disorder from the culture into the church that clouds the gospel. And so I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He's addressing this cultural disorder which was impacting the church, which was discrediting the gospel of Jesus Christ and was discrediting God's good design to make men and women equal but different. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the message, and I think this is how many people interpret this passage. I'm just going to read these two verses from the message. A lot of people interpret it this way. Not everyone interprets it this way. I think this is a good interpretation. He says, wives must not disrupt worship. Talk, and, and men, by the way, shouldn't, but I think the specific issue here and in these churches was that women weren't sure and the men weren't sure how to this, this new, like Jesus brought this incredible equality to men and women that the culture did not have. And they didn't know how to work that out. They didn't know how to live that out. And so they're learning it. And so I think Paul is addressing this. Eugene Peterson writes, wives must not disrupt worship, talking when they should be listening, asking questions that could be more appropriately be asked of their husbands at home. God's book of the law guides our manners and customs here. Wives, has, wives have no license to use the time of worship for unwarranted speaking. Do you, both men and women, imagine that you're a sacred oracle determining what's right and wrong? Do you think everything revolves around you? So there was some type of like personal spirituality or some type of questioning that was superseding the communal, the, the corporate upbuilding of the body. That's what I think Paul is addressing here. There's different interpretations. I might be wrong. They all might be wrong. And so, let's hold this with humility. Let's strive to cling to Jesus together. How do we come to the table and take communion after that point? I don't really know. But that's why we gather as a church. And that's why 
You just need to know at Park Community, we're always going to stay a little bit more general from the pulpit on these type of interpretations because we gather to worship Jesus, not to nuance every theological and cultural practice. Amen? Amen. And so I want to invite you to the table. Regardless of how you interpret this, regardless of how this may have triggered you or frustrated you or encouraged you, if you are a follower of Jesus, we are gathered to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. He values us so much that he went to the cross to die in our place. Men and women, Jew and Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, all people, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all languages, Jesus values so much that he took our place upon the cross. So if you believe that truth, I want to invite you to the table. Grab the wafer off the top there. Let's hear the holy crinkle. Pull that out and let me remind you, as Paul reminds the church in Corinth as they take communion together, that Jesus, when he sat with his disciples, the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. God the Father, we thank you for Jesus the Son. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Thank you for sticking with me for that long sermon, church family. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come back up and close us out with a song of worship and reflection and response. And then I encourage you to go have real communion, a love feast at the park with the church family. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. Lord, as we wrestle with these ideas of submission and silence, I thank you that you, Jesus, yourself, you submitted yourself to the will of God the Father. And that the scriptures tell us that when you were hauled away to be slaughtered, you opened not your mouth. You were like a sheep led to the slaughter, yet you remained silent. You let God justify you and be your vindication rather than trying to self-justify and defend. Lord, I pray that each one of us would have the humility, increasing humility to trust God the Father in a like manner to how Jesus trusted God the Father. May you have your way in us, Lord Jesus, for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.